0: Book two of chapter thirteen of Les Misérables. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by John Bailey. Les Misérables by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel F. Hapgood. Book two, chapter thirteen, Little Gervais. Jean Valjean left the town as though he were fleeing from it. He set out at a very hasty pace through the fields, taking whatever roads and paths presented themselves to him, without perceiving that he was incessantly retracing his steps. He wandered thus the whole morning without having eaten anything and without feeling hungry. He was the prey of a throng of novel sensations. He was conscious of a sort of rage. He did not know against whom it was directed. He could not have told whether he was touched or humiliated. There came over him at moments a strange emotion which he resisted and to which he opposed the hardness acquired during the last twenty years of his life. This state of mind fatigued him. He perceived with dismay that the sort of frightful calm which the injustice of his misfortune "'had conferred upon him "'was giving way within him. "'He asked himself what would replace this. "'At times he would have actually preferred "'to be in prison with a gendarme, "'and that things should not have happened in this way. "'It would have agitated him less. "'Although the season was tolerably far advanced, "'there were still a few late flowers "'in the hedgerows here and there, "'whose odor as he passed through them in his march recalled to him memories of his childhood these memories were almost intolerable to him it was so long since they had recurred to him unutterable thoughts assembled within him in this manner all day long as the sun declined to its setting casting long shadows athwart the soil from every pebble jean valjean sat down behind a bush upon a large ruddy plain which was absolutely deserted there was nothing on the horizon except the alps not even the spire of a distant village jean valjean might have been three leagues distant from the a path which intersected the plains passed a few paces from the bush in the middle of this meditation which would have contributed not a little to render his rags terrifying to anyone who might have encountered him, a joyous sound became audible. He turned his head and saw a little Savoyard, about ten years of age, coming up the path and singing his hurdy-gurdy on his hip and his marmo-box on his back. One of those gay and gentle children who go from land to land affording a view of their knees through the holes in their trousers. Without stopping his song, the lad halted in his march from time to time, and played at knuckle-bones, with some coins which he had in his hand. His whole fortune, probably. Among this money there was one forty sous piece. The child halted beside the bush, without perceiving Jean Valjean, and tossed up his handful of sous, which... Up to that time, he had caught with a good deal of adroitness on the back of his hand. This time, the forty-soup piece escaped him and went rolling toward the brushwood until it reached Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean set his foot upon it. In the meantime, the child had looked after his coin and had caught sight of him. He showed no astonishment, but walked straight up to the man the spot was absolutely solitary. As far as the eye could see, there was not a person on the plain or on the path. The only sound was the tiny, feeble cries of a flock of birds of passage, which was traversing the heavens at an immense height. The child was standing with his back to the sun, which cast threads of gold in his hair, and empurpled with its blood-red gleam the savage face of Jean Valjean. Sir, said the little Savoyard, with that childish confidence which is composed of ignorance and innocence, my money. What is your name? said Jean Valjean. Little Gervais, sir. Go away, said Jean Valjean. "'Sir,' resumed the child, "'give me back my money.' Jean Valjean dropped his head and made no reply. The child began again, "'My money, sir.' Jean Valjean's eyes remained fixed on the earth. "'My piece of money!' cried the child. "'My white piece, my silver!' It seemed as though Jean Valjean did not hear him. The child grasped him by the collar of his blouse and shook him. At the same time, he made an effort to displace the big iron-shod shoe which rested on his treasure. I want my piece of money, my piece of forty sous! The child wept. Jean Valjean raised his head. He still remained seated. His eyes were troubled. He gazed out at the child, in a sort of amazement. Then he stretched out his hand towards his cudgel, and cried in a terrible voice, "'Who's there?' "'Aye, sir,' replied the child, "'little Kerwey, I give me back my forty sous, if you please. Take your foot away, sir, if you please.' Then, irritated, though he was so small, and becoming almost menacing, Come now, will you take your foot away? Take your foot away, or we'll see. Ah, It's still you, said Jean Valjean, and rising abruptly to his feet, his foot still resting on the silver piece, he added, Will you take yourself off? The frightened child looked at him, then began to tremble from head to foot, and after a few moments of stupor, he set out, running at his top speed, without daring to turn his neck or to utter a cry. Nevertheless, lack of breath forced him to halt after a certain distance, and Jean Valjean heard him sobbing in the midst of his own reverie. At the end of a few moments, the child had disappeared. The sun had set. The shadows were descending around Jean Valjean. He had eaten nothing all day. It is probable that he was feverish. He had remained standing, and he had not changed his attitude after the child's flight. The breath heaved his chest at long and irregular intervals. His gaze, fixed ten or twelve paces in front of him, seemed to be scrutinizing with profound attention the shape of an ancient fragment of blue earthenware which had fallen in the grass. All at once he shivered he had just begun to feel the chill of evening. He settled his cap more firmly on his brow, sought mechanically to cross and button his blouse, advanced a step, and stopped to pick up his cudgel. At that moment he caught sight of the forty-sou piece, which his foot had half ground into the earth, and which was shining among the pebbles. It was as though he had received a galvanic shock "'What is this?' he muttered between his teeth. He recoiled three paces, then halted, without being able to detach his gaze from the spot which his foot had trodden but an instant before, as though the thing which lay glittering there in the gloom had been an open eye riveted upon him. At the expiration of a few moments, he darted convulsively toward the silver coin, seized it, and straightened himself up again, and began to gaze afar off over the plain, at the same time casting his eyes towards all points of the horizon, as he stood there, erect and shivering, like a terrified wild animal which is seeking refuge. He saw nothing. Night was falling. The plain was cold and vague. Great banks of violet haze were rising in the gleam of the twilight. He said, Ah! and set out rapidly in the direction in which the child had disappeared. After about thirty paces, he paused, looked about him, and saw nothing. Then he shouted with all his might, Little Gervais! Little Gervais! He paused and waited. There was no reply. The landscape was gloomy and deserted, he was encompassed by space. There was nothing around him but an obscurity in which his gaze was lost, and a silence which engulfed his voice. An icy north wind was blowing, and imparted to things around him a sort of lugubrious life. The bushes shook their thin little arms with incredible fury. One would have said that they were threatening in pursuing someone he set out on his march again. Then he began to run, and from time to time he halted and shouted in that solitude with a voice which was the most formidable and the most disconsolate that it was possible to hear. Little Gervais! Little Gervais! Assuredly, if the child had heard him, he would have been alarmed and would have taken good care not to show himself. But the child was no doubt already far away. He encountered a priest on horseback. He stepped up to him and said, Monsieur le curé, have you seen a child pass? No, said the priest. One named Little Gervais. I have seen no one. He drew two five-franc pieces from his money-bag and handed them to the priest. Monsieur le Cure, this is for your poor people. Monsieur le Cure, he was a little lad, about ten years old, with a marmot, I think, and a hurdy gurdy, one of those Savoyards, you know. I have not seen him. Little Gervais, there are no villages here, can you tell me? If he is like what you say, my friend, he is a little stranger. Such persons pass through these parts, we know nothing of them. Jean Valjean seized two more coins of five francs, each with violence, and gave them to the priest. "'For your poor,' he said. Then he added wildly, "'Monsieur l'abbé, have me arrested! I am a thief!' The priest put spurs to his horse and fled in haste, much alarmed. Jean Valjean set out in a run, in the direction which he had first taken. In this way he traversed a tolerably long distance, gazing, calling, shouting, but he met no one. Two or three times he ran across the plain towards something which conveyed to him the effect of a human being reclining or crouching down. It turned out to be nothing but brushwood or rocks, nearly on a level with the earth. At length, at a spot where three paths intersected each other, he stopped. The moon had risen. He sent his gaze into the distance, and shouted for the last time, Little Gervé! Little Gervé! Little Gervais!" His shout died away in the midst, without even awaking an echo. He murmured yet once more, Little Gervais!" But in a feeble and almost inarticulate voice, It was his last effort, but his legs gave way abruptly under him, as though an invisible power had suddenly overwhelmed him with the weight of his evil conscience. He fell, exhausted, on a large stone. His fists clenched in his hair, and his face on his knees, and he cried, I am a wretch! Then his heart burst, and he began to cry. It was the first time that he had wept in nineteen years. When Jean Valjean left the bishop's house, he was, as we have seen, quite thrown out of everything that had been his thought hitherto. He could not yield to the evidence of what was going on within him. He hardened himself against the angelic action and the gentle words of the old man, You have promised me to become an honest man. I buy your soul. I take it away from the spirit of perversity. I give it to the good God. This recurred to his mind unceasingly. To this celestial kindness he opposed pride, which is the fortress of evil within us. He was indistinctly conscious that the pardon of this priest was the greatest assault and the most formidable attack which had moved him yet. That his obduracy was finally settled if he resisted this clemency. That if he yielded, he should be obliged to renounce that hatred with which the actions of other men had filled his soul through so many years, and which pleased him. That this time it was necessary to conquer or be conquered, and that a struggle, a colossal and final struggle, had been begun between his viciousness and the goodness of that man. In the presence of these lights, he proceeded like a man who is intoxicated. As he walked thus with haggard eyes, did he have a distinct perception of what might result to him from his adventure at D? Did he understand all those mysterious murmurs which warned or importune the spirit at certain moments of life? Did a voice whisper in his ear that he had just passed the solemn hour of his destiny, that there were no longer remaining a middle course for him, that if he were not henceforth the best of men, he would be the worst, that it behooved him now, so to speak, to mount higher than the bishop or fall lower than the convict, that if he wished to become good, he must become an angel, that if he wished to remain evil, he must become a monster? Here again, some questions must be put, which we have already put to ourselves elsewhere. Did he catch some shadow of all this in his thought, in a confused way? Misfortune certainly, as we have said, does form the education of the intelligence. Nevertheless, it is doubtful whether Jean Valjean was in a condition to disentangle all that we have here indicated. If these ideas occurred to him, he but caught glimpses of, rather than saw them, and they only succeeded in throwing him into an unutterable and almost painful state of emotion. ON EMERGING FROM THAT BLACK AND DEFORMED THING WHICH IS CALLED THE galleys, THE BISHOP HAD HURT HIS SOUL, AS TOO VIVID A LIGHT WOULD HAVE HURT HIS EYES ON EMERGING FROM THE DARK. THE FUTURE LIFE, THE POSSIBLE LIFE, WHICH OFFERED ITSELF TO HIM HENCEFORTH, ALL PURE AND RADIANT, FILLED HIM WITH TREMORS AND ANXIETY. HE NO LONGER KNEW WHERE HE REALLY WAS, LIKE AN OWL, WHO SHOULD SUDDENLY SEE THE SUNRISE, the convict had been dazzled and blinded, as it were, by virtue. That which was certain, that which he did not doubt, was that he was no longer the same man, that everything about him was changed, that it was no longer in his power to make it as though the bishop had not spoken to him and had not touched him. In this state of mind he had encountered little Gervais, and had robbed him of his forty sous. Why? Why? he certainly could not have explained it. Was this the last effect in the supreme effort, as it were, of the evil thoughts which he had brought away from the galleys, a remnant of impulse, a result of what is called in statics acquired force? It was that, and it was also perhaps even less than that. Let us say it simply. It was not he who stole. It was not the man. It was the beast, who by habit and instinct had simply placed his foot upon that money, while the intelligence was struggling amidst so many novel and hitherto unheard-of thoughts besetting it. When intelligence reawakened and beheld that action of the brute, Jean Valjean recoiled with anguish and uttered a cry of terror. It was because, strange phenomenon, and one which was possible only in the situation in which he found himself. In stealing that money from that child, HE HAD DONE A THING OF WHICH HE WAS NO LONGER CAPABLE. HOWEVER THAT MAY BE, THIS LAST EVIL ACTION HAD A DECISIVE EFFECT ON HIM. IT ABRUPTLY TRAVERSED THAT CHAOS WHICH HE BORE IN HIS MIND AND dispersed IT, PLACED ON ONE SIDE THE THICK OBSCURITY AND ON THE OTHER THE LIGHT, AND ACTED ON HIS SOUL, IN THE STATE IN WHICH IT THEN WAS, AS CERTAIN CHEMICAL REAGENTS ACT UPON A TROUBLED MIXTURE, by precipitating one element and clarifying the other. First of all, even before examining himself and reflecting, all bewildered, like one who seeks to save himself, he tried to find the child in order to return his money to him. Then, when he recognized the fact that this was impossible, he halted in despair. At that moment when he exclaimed, I am a wretch, he had just perceived what he was and he was already separated from himself to such a degree that he seemed to himself to be no longer anything more than a phantom as if he had therefore before him in flesh and blood the hideous galley convict jean valjean cudgel in hand his blouse on his hips his knapsack filled with stolen objects on his back with his resolute and gloomy visage with his thoughts filled with abominable projects excess of unhappiness had, as we have remarked, made him in some sort of a visionary. This, then, was in the nature of a vision. He actually saw that Jean Valjean, that sinister face, before him. He had almost reached the point of asking himself who that man was, and he was horrified by him. His brain was going through one of those violent and yet perfectly calm moments, in which reverie is so profound that it absorbs reality. One no longer beholds the object which one has before one, and one sees, as though apart from oneself, the figures which one has in one's own mind. Thus he contemplated himself, so to speak, face to face, and at the same time, athwart this hallucination, he perceived, in a mysterious depth, a sort of light, which he at first took for a torch. On scrutinizing this light, which appeared to his conscience with more attention, he recognized the fact that it possessed a human form, and that this torch was the bishop. His conscience weighed in turn these two men thus placed before it, the bishop and Jean Valjean. Nothing less than the first was required to soften the second, by one of those singular effects which are peculiar to this sort of ecstasies in proportion as his reverie continued as the bishop grew great and resplendent in his eyes so did jean valjean grow less and vanish after a certain time he was no longer anything more than a shade all at once he disappeared The bishop alone remained. He filled the whole soul of this wretched man with a magnificent radiance. Jean Valjean wept for a long time. He wept burning tears. He sobbed with more weakness than a woman, with more fright than a child. As he wept, daylight penetrated more and more clearly into his soul an extraordinary light, a light at once ravishing and terrible. His past life, his first fault, his long expiation, his external brutishness, his internal hardness, his dismissal to liberty, rejoicing in manifold plans of vengeance, what had happened to him at the bishop's? The last thing that he had done, that theft of forty sous from a child, a crime all the more cowardly and all the more monstrous since it had come after the bishop's pardon. All this recurred to his mind and appeared clearly to him, but with a clearness which he had never hitherto witnessed. He examined his life, and it seemed horrible to him, his soul, and it seemed frightful to him. In the meantime, a gentle light rested over this life and this soul. It seemed to him that he had beheld Satan by the light of paradise. How many hours did he weep thus? What did he do after he wept? Whither did he go? No one ever knew. The only thing which seems to be authenticated is that that same night... The carrier who served Grenoble at that epoch, who arrived at D, about three o'clock in the morning, saw, as he traversed the street in which the bishop's residence was situated, a man in the attitude of prayer, kneeling on that pavement in the shadow, in front of the door of Monseigneur Welcome. End of Book 2, Chapter 13